This morning we have Reverend Tom Darnell coming to preach to us. Tom, uh, many of you may know him. Tom has preached at Trinity before. Tom has been uh, a long-standing mentor and friend to many in our presbytery, including me and Brandon. Uh, he is now the pastor of spiritual formation for Nashville Presbytery. So he's a free agent in a lot of ways, uh, helping young ministers like me grow in the Lord and grow in our ministry. Uh, we're grateful to have Tom here this morning to proclaim God's word to us. Tom, would you come on up? Thank you, Mitchell. So glad to be with you this morning. Let me start with just a question for you today. And here's the question. Have you ever had an experience with other Christians that has left you with a deeper desire to pray? I, I have, and that experience sometimes is repeated for me because it happens in my own household. My, uh, my wife, Cheryl, who's not with me today, uh, often goes to bed before I do. And I uh, sometimes remember that there's something I left in the bedroom, and I think she's in bed by that time. And I enter the bedroom, and she's not in bed. She's on her knees by her bed praying. Now, if you knew Cheryl, you, you would know that this is not an easy thing for her to do. Cheryl has a lot of maladies, which she's very open to talk about. But one of those maladies is, is that she has a very hard time uh, with leg strength. She uses a walker these days all the time around the house. And if we take a longer journey, like in shopping, I'll put her in a wheelchair and I'll wheel her around. She has two rods on either side of her spine running the entire length of her spine. Uh, it is not easy for Cheryl to kneel, let alone for her to get up from kneeling. But I know that each night, whether I see her or not, she's by her bed, on her knees, praying. That really ministers to me. It convicts me. But it also encourages me to grow in being a man of prayer. Well, our experience today in the passage we're about to read tells us that the disciples, upon seeing Jesus praying, asked him to teach them to pray. They saw what they wanted to become. So we will read shortly, and I'll read it again in verse 1 of Luke 11. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. This is the fifth time in Luke's gospel that the disciples see Jesus praying. Luke is very specific to mention that. Before this fifth time here in Luke 11, he mentions that in Luke 3, Luke 5, Luke 6, Luke 9, and now Luke 11. That itself is a great help to us and a lesson to us about our praying, isn't it? If the Son of Man was in need of praying often to the Father, what does this teach the sons and daughters of Adam about their need to pray? So Jesus responds to his disciples' request to teach them to pray and gives them two lessons about praying. So first, he is all about to read, he teaches them to pray by laying out a brief summary of what to pray. And this is what we call today the Lord's Prayer. He teaches them the content of prayer. But secondly, 
Jesus teaches the disciples to pray by sharing with them a story or a parable on how to pray. This reveals the attitude or the disposition we should have when we pray. And it's that last thing that he teaches, this parable, that I'm going to highlight today uh, in my message to you. So let's read this account, Luke 11, 1 through 13. And here's how it begins, as I read previously. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is God's word. As you can see, uh, if you're looking at your outline notes and your bulletin, we're going to look at two points, and that is what this parable doesn't teach and what this parable does teach. Pretty simple outline. Let me pray for all of us before we look at these two points. Lord, we want to be honest with you this morning and tell you that we come with great expectation that, Lord, you would minister to us. We pray for the burdens and cares of last week and perhaps those of the coming week we would set aside by the power of your Holy Spirit that we'd be singularly focused now upon this passage in Luke 11. And as the disciples asked, we pray, Lord, teach us to pray. Minister deeply to our souls, Lord, and manifest to us the great power and strength you give to those, Lord, who are in need of learning how to pray in a way that honors you. So now, Lord, that is our expectation, and we thank you that you've inclined your ear to what we've prayed because we've come in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first of all, in, very, in a very short way, let me answer the question, what uh, does this parable not teach? Well, first of all, it doesn't teach that we should expect God to be reluctant 
to give us anything we pray for. It doesn't teach that. So the reluctant friend in Jesus' parable uh, is not the main point of the parable. Uh, in fact, the reluctant friend in the first half of the parable is meant to be in contrast uh, with God the generous Father in the second half of the parable. It's a contrast, and we see that in the two points of the parable. So God does not teach us that we should expect God to be reluctant to give us anything we pray for. Secondly, we are being taught that the parable doesn't teach that we should expect God to give us everything we pray for. It doesn't teach that either. So any parent's experience with their children uh, teaches them uh, that children will tell them what they want, but the response to their children is to give them what they ask for, depending upon the wisdom of what they ask for, is it a wise thing to provide for them, and the legitimacy of the thing that they require from their parents. Parents don't give their children everything they ask for. Thank the Lord. Those two things are not being taught in this parable. So most of our time is going to be talking about what is being taught. Let's look at those things in this parable. What does this parable teach? Well, first of all, God honors our prayers because we are persistent, because of what we do. Look at verse 8 again with me. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. We don't use the word impudence much in our conversations with one another, uh, but if you were to look up that word, you'd find out that it means shameless persistence. Impudence is shameless persistence. And to drive that point home about persistent praying, we see Jesus using these words to ask, seek, and knock. Because that progression is a progression of shameless persistence. It's the easiest to ask. It's a little bit more involved to seek. And it's even more involved to knock. That's the progression of shameless persistence. Now, we know that small children are experts in shameless persistence. Babies are great at being shamelessly persistent because when there is a need that they have, whether because they're sick or they're hungry or whatever it may be, they cry, right? And it goes on and on and on until the meat is met, the need is met, right? That's what, children, that's what babies do. Children are not much different. If they don't verbalize exactly what they want, they'll go, uh, 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 They don't need to be taught to go, uh, 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 uh. Do parents ever teach their children to ask? Do children, do, do, do children ever hear the parents say, no, Johnny, you don't ask enough, so I'm going to teach you how to ask for things. Do children need to be taught? No. They are shamelessly persistent in what they want. So in this parable, the friend's shameless persistence is triggered by his desperation. What's his desperation? He has no bread for his visiting friend. He is desperate to get help. Now you need to understand Eastern culture to realize how desperate he is, unlike perhaps we would feel 
if we were in the same circumstance. In Near Eastern culture, hospitality was a sacred duty. You were called to be a generous provider for those who visit your home. It would be unthinkable not to put on the roots for a visiting friend if they were in need of something to eat. You would put on the roots for them. And if you didn't, it would be like you having a wedding and people coming to your reception and there's no food. That's what it would be like for them. It's unthinkable. They would not do that. So he is in desperation. So why is Jesus telling this parable of these two friends? One who is desperate and the other who is reluctant. Why those two characters in this parable? Well, first, as I've already said, the reluctant friend is telling us God is the polar opposite of him. God is not like him. He longs to hear the prayers of his children. He wants to know the request. But by the desperate friend, he's telling us that we are much more desperate than he. If we understood how desperate we really are spiritually, we would learn more about praying. So the more we understand how desperate we are, the more we become experts at persistent praying. So it's even hard, I find, not just for people like yourselves. Uh, it's also hard for people like me in the ministry to know how desperate we really are, particularly when we're together. When pastors are together, uh, they like to look good. So we find, oftentimes I find, when we have pastors that pray, they're not very candid about what their needs are, actually. When I was pastoring in Williamsburg, Virginia, I and another pastor were co-leaders of a pastoral uh, fellowship group. We would meet monthly, and this pastor and I were talking one time about how do we make this time more personal, more intimate? How do we come closer together and not remain so distant? So we decided that one of the things that would help would be for us to pray for one another, to break up into smaller groups and sit down and share what are your needs, how can we pray, and then to pray. Invariably, almost every time I led a group, and these pastors begin to share what they wanted prayer for, it was not about their needs. It was about somebody else. <laughs> it was about somebody in their family. It was about that the fact that their dog just died, or Aunt Sarah who lived in Alaska, you know, but it was not about them. And I'd often have to just stop lovingly and say, Joe, I, I'm, I know this thing you shared is important to you, and I don't mean to belittle that at all. But we could pray for that, but what we, what we really want to pray for is pray for you. So what are the needs that you have, Joe, that we can pray for? And it was like them looking, I don't know if I want to do that. So we began to try to teach them, how can we pray for you? People are reluctant to share their desperate needs. But if they knew them and would share them, they would be more impudent in their praying. So how many things should we be persistent about? Well, Philippians 4 tells us what that might be. So Philippians 4 says, have no anxiety about anything, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How much do we pray for? Everything. Everything. Does that leave anything out? No, everything. We come to pray. Notice it says that you should let your request be made known to God, not insist that God give you what you want. But you tell God what's on your heart so that he knows your own soul. It's best for you to do that with him because it puts you in touch with your own needs. So prayer, then, is the language of dependence. Prayer is the language of dependence. If we're not praying much, we are depending much on ourselves. When we pray little, we self-trust much. When we pray little, we self-trust much. The Puritan and pastor Matthew Henry writes, those who live without prayer live without God in this world. So why does praying with shameless persistence mean anything if God controls everything? That's a legitimate question. If God controls everything, then is it a matter of wit what I pray? Why would I do that? It's a good question. It should be asked. And if you don't have an answer for that, let me help you provide one. <laughs> we understand that God controls all things by passages like Job 42, 2, that says, I know that you, Lord, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Okay, if that's true, why pray? What difference does it make? Well, pastor and theologian John Piper says this about God's purposes and our praying. Listen to Piper. Listen carefully. It can sound complex, but I'll boil it down easier when I get to the end. Piper writes, God providentially ordains all events. Plus, God never ordains an event without a cause. The event will happen if the cause happens. So God ordains the event. He ordains the cause. He ordains both. Answers to prayer, which is the event, are always ordained as effects or results of prayer, which is the cause. Prayer is the cause. What happens by that answered prayer is the event. Piper goes on, since both the cause and the effect or the result are ordained together, you can't say that the effect or the result will happen even if the cause, which is prayer, doesn't happen. Because God doesn't ordain effects or the results without causes, prayer. God ordains the end, and he ordains the means. He ordains both. He ordains both. So when I talk about persistent prayer, or when we read that here in this passage, it means that we are to do that with expectation of a result because as it touches on God's purposes, it does bring result. So when I say God honors those prayers, a qualifier is that God 
honors persistent spirit-led prayers. Spirit-led prayers. Paul says in Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So we know as Christians that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. God calls us his temple. There the spirit dwells. And Paul is saying, have a heart that is sensitive to the work of the spirit. And as the spirit leads you to pray, pray. And if it's in fact led by the spirit, that God will heed the prayers that we offer to him. As it touches on his purposes, that prayer will be answered. Now look back. At verse 1. Look back at verse 1. Now Jesus was praying, we read. So was Jesus praying only because he was a man, he had taken on flesh, and he was on the earth? When he ascended, did that praying stop? Does he stop praying? Because he's not on earth any longer. No. He didn't stop. Listen to Romans 8.34. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He continues to pray. For whom? You. Me. He continues to pray. Now think about this. Why is God praying? What? what? Jesus is still praying? Why? I thought we prayed to him, and he responded according to how it touches on his purposes. So why is he praying? He's praying for the same thing. He's praying the same thing. So that's not all. In Romans 8.27, we read, The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. (laughs) Now, wait a minute. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. And so he's praying, yes. Why? He's God. Why is he praying? Well, dear people, there is a mystery in this that I can't articulate in such a way that it satisfies my own understanding. But here's what I understand by praying. Praying is a power that you cannot on this earth fathom. It is such a power that God the Son and God the Spirit need to pray that the purposes of God would be fulfilled. And not just their praying for God's purposes to be fulfilled, but you're praying that God's purposes would be fulfilled. And if I won't participate in praying that God's purposes will be fulfilled, God will raise up someone else to pray on this earth that God's purposes would be fulfilled in harmony with God the Spirit and God the Son. Dear friends, that is powerful. That is a privilege. Isn't that a privilege? That we can be involved in reaching around the world with our prayers, along with God the Spirit and God the Son, and we can see those purposes be fulfilled. So Jesus and the Holy Spirit... Pray for at least two reasons. They pray for us for at least two reasons. One, they're much more aware of how desperate our needs are than we. They know how desperate in need we are of their praying for us. 
If God could open our eyes to see the unseen world that stands against us, you would ask them to pray for you. Secondly, they're committed to fulfilling the triune God's purposes for us, so they pray. So they pray. That is power. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. This is not a human being issue. He says, For the weapons of our warfare, which includes prayer, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, listen, have divine power to destroy strongholds. How important is that? It is so important that God the Son and God the Spirit pray for you habitually. That's how important that is. Just them? No. He invites us to join them in praying for that. Our prayers, the Spirit's prayers, the Son's prayers destroy strongholds. God's invited us to be involved in seeing God's purposes fulfilled as we pray. Now, the Bible warns us of a kind of persistence uh, that is a hindrance to our praying. We find this in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 6, 7. It says, as Jesus is being quoted, And when you pray, Jesus says, Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't heap up empty phrases. If we pray like God will only hear us, if we say enough words, or if we say the right words, then we don't understand prayer. <laughs> if we do that, we're treating God like a vending machine. If I put in the right coins, I'll get what I'm praying for. We don't pray like that. In Luke 11, a person prays expecting God to respond because he's needy, because he has needs, not because he's using the right words or enough words. That's what we see in prayer. God honors our prayers because we are persistent. That's what we do. Then the last thing, God honors our prayers because we are his children of who we are. Look at verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The greatest thing God can give his children, all the gifts that he can give, the greatest gift is the Holy Spirit. And if we are believers in Christ, confessed our faith in him, that gift has been given to us. There's no greater gift. That came through praying, didn't it? So I said at the beginning here that the parable doesn't teach we should expect God to give us everything we pray for. So why won't grant God grant us everything we pray for? Let me give you some reasons why he won't do that. Because sometimes our prayers are a substitute for obedience. Sometimes our prayers are a substitute for obedience. So rather than being obedient, we think we'll pray, and I don't need to think about being obedient, I just need to be involved in asking God to give what I want. I've had dear saints, married saints, who are praying about whether they should divorce their spouse because they're unhappy. Not because there's adultery or there's fornication or there's some sort of marital breakage in their relationship. It's just that they're not happy. 
So they're praying about whether they should divorce. That's a perfect example of them not being obedient. Instead, they're using prayer as an excuse not to do what God commands them to do. Listen to what John says in his epistle, 1 John 5. He says this, and this is the confidence, John says, that we have in him. Now listen, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we have obtained the requests made of him. When do we obtain requests that we give him in prayer? When it's prayed according to his will, his will. When it touches on his will, it's the degree that my prayer is effective. So we ought always to pray for, not against, what God has willed in Scripture. That's what we pray for. So James, in his epistle, warns even the Christians of his or her, of their motive and what they pray for. This is from James 4, 3 and 4. Listen to what James says. He says, you ask God for them and yet fail to receive because you ask with wrong purpose and evil, selfish motives. Your intention is when you get what you desire to spend it in your sensual pleasures. You are like unfaithful wives having illicit love affairs with the world and breaking your marriage vows to God. So Piper comments about what that means. Listen to what he says. John Piper says, God pictures the church as the wife of God. God has made us for himself and has given himself for us for our enjoyment. Therefore, it is adultery when we try to be friends with the world if we seek from the world the pleasures we should seek in God and we are unfaithful to our marriage vows, spiritually speaking. And what's worse, when we go to our heavenly husband and actually pray for the resources with which to commit adultery with the world, it's a very wicked thing. It is as though we should ask our husband for money to hire male prostitutes to provide pleasures we don't find in him. So here's the principle. (laughs) We're always to make known to God all the things that are on our heart to pray for humbly, like children, not insisting on his will, our will, but that his will be done. I always recognize that I may not fully understand what that will is. So, why won't God give us everything we pray for? Because sometimes our prayers are a substitute for obedience. Secondly, God doesn't give us everything we pray for because we are poor judges of what's good or best for us, often. We are poor judges about what's good or best for us. So praying is not trying to talk God into giving us something he doesn't want to give us. That's not praying. I'm not trying to convince God to give me what he doesn't want to give me. Because he wants to give that which is according to his will. We know that. Stuart Briscoe, Pastor Stuart Briscoe writes this. He says, the Father does not promise to grant positive answers to some of our requests because while we may think that we are asking for fish, What we may be desiring would be a serpent. Our system of values can be so confused that what we imagine to be bread could be as worthless as a stone. 
So when we pray, I'm honest like a child is with their parents about what they desire, but I also desire and strive to be like a parent who has the wisdom to know that everything I might want is not best for me. So I submit to him. I am honest with this on my heart, but I don't insist and demand what may not be good for me. I yield that to his will, whatever that may be. The reformer John Calvin states this principle about answered prayer. He says, God does not answer our prayers as we pray them, but we would pray them if we were wiser. He gives us, if we were wiser, the things we should get. Not all the time is what we just pray for them. So God doesn't give us everything we pray for because sometimes they're a substitute for obedience and because at times we're poor judges of what's good or best for us. We've looked at what the parable teaches and what it uh, does not teach. And I'd like to close with a look at John's gospel, this great passage of scripture, just a short passage about prayer, John 14. If you have your Bible or your smartphone, turn there. John 14, 12 through 14. This, my friend, is one of the most astounding passages, in my view, in all of Scripture. Listen to what Jesus says, John 14, 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Did you hear what Jesus says? He says, because he goes to the Father, you will do works and greater works than he's ever done. (laughs) Now, wait a minute. Does anybody here want to claim that the work that you do is equal to or greater than what Jesus has done? Anybody want to make that claim? Sometimes vast pastors act like they can make that claim, unfortunately. But no one can make that claim. So what what is Jesus saying? We're going to approach and exceed the work of Christ? What does he say right after that? He talks about praying after he says that. Ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. So what is Jesus saying? Here's what he's saying. (laughs) That the collective prayers of God's people approach and exceed the work of Christ while he was on earth. The collective prayers of God's people approach and exceed the work of Christ. The churches all over the world, as we pray, we are reaching out that God's purposes would be affected and accomplished. We together are doing that. That approaches and exceeds the work of Christ. The collective prayers of God's people. It is my prayer that Trinity Presbyterian Church should be known in Murfreesboro as the church that prays. People say, Trinity Presbyterian, you know what? Those people pray. I know some of those people. They are praying people. Why is that a good thing? Because the praying people are a dependent people. They depend on the Lord. Does that describe your relationship with each other in this church, that you are a praying people, you can grow 
to become more and more and more and more like that? Would God give you grace to become a praying church, a praying church that participates with God the Son and God the Spirit to accomplish the purposes of God for this body, for this community, and this world? God has called us to be that kind of people. In closing, Charles Spurgeon says this. He said, we should pray when we are in a praying mood, for it would be sinful to neglect so fair an opportunity. We should pray when we're not in a praying mood, for it would be dangerous to remain in so unhealthy a condition. Let me pray. Father, these words I preach to myself because I stand more and more amazed the more I become an aged man that, Lord, you have given us, given me a power in prayer that destroys strongholds. Lord, I thank you for the unique, unbelievable, blessed privilege to cooperate with the Son of God and the Spirit of God to accomplish the purposes of God through prayer. Would you touch our hearts with that sense of privilege? Would it move us to our knees, literally or figuratively, that we would be a praying people, and by that praying, destroying strong the household and the fortifications of the evil one to be evident? Because, Lord, we have participated in prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Amen.